0: The interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company operating internationally from bases in the UK and US. Smarter Grid Solutions' DERM's products are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets into the grid and market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smart Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over and value from your clean energy assets, visit sgsderms.com slash interchange. That's sgsderms.com slash interchange, or follow the link in the show notes. We're also brought to you by NLX, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. NLX serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization at all levels. As a trusted partner for solar installers and developers, NLX provides energy storage, DER management software, and smart electric vehicle charging stations to increase project value in addition to sharing energy service revenue. Learn about what NLX can do for your business at NLX.com.
1: ML providing some kind of stopgap while we're in some sense waiting for something that would in some sense be a better practical solution is a a really, I think, legitimate and relevant theme in, in a number of applications.
2: In the pantheon of pairings, there's peanut butter and jelly, there's eggs and toast, there's chicken soup and hot sauce, come at me, and now machine learning and climate change. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So this week, we are talking about climate change and machine learning with two experts in the field. But before we get to that conversation, I want to talk for a minute about climate tech in public markets. There's been plenty of talk, both on this show and elsewhere, about the SPAC phenomenon that we've seen over the past year or so and the impacts that it is having and might have on earlier stage, climate tech innovation. But what I've seen less of is discussion around climate tech companies in the public markets more broadly. Set SPACs aside for a second, it's been a pretty wild ride for basically any public company that you could call climate tech, with quotes around it, over the past couple of years. In general, these companies have been dramatically outperforming the market, though it has been pretty volatile. We at Energy Impact Partners a while ago wanted a way to track this for ourselves. It's actually kind of hard to put a bead on what's happening across all of these companies. So a few months ago, we created an index. It's called the EIP Climate Tech Index, and we made it public. Just go to www.eipclimateindex.com, and you can see it on a daily basis. It updates every day. To be clear, this is not an ETF, and we're not making investment recommendations. We're just trying to have a straightforward way to monitor Climate tech companies' performance all in one place. The idea here was to be broad. So the index has 35 constituent companies, ranging from big companies like Vestas to, I guess, medium companies like Sunrun or Beyond Meat to some of the post-SPAC companies like Nikola Motor. It includes Tesla, it includes Plug Power, ChargePoint, and so on and so forth. So, anyway, I find it a useful place to check in once in a while to get the pulse of the public markets on what. They think about climate tech broadly and not just specific to one company. So here's what's been going on, because I think it's kind of interesting. If you index back to January 2020, which is when things really started to diverge. So, you know, the markets are proceeding upward generally, and then the markets crash as COVID hits and the climate tech index companies crashed right along with the broader market market indices. Everything looked pretty similar. But the recovery is where things really changed. And as the markets recovered more broadly, the climate tech companies uh, recovered much, much faster and then continued to grow in terms of their share prices way beyond what the market was experiencing. The peak was basically January of this year, January 2021, our EIP Climate Tech Index relative to January 2020, a year before, was up almost 200%, while NASDAQ, you know, market index, was up less than 50%. So it's basically four times outperformance relative to the overall market. But since then, this year, uh, there has been what I've been calling the SPAC lash, and the overall EIP Climate Tech Index fell 40% from its highs by May of this year, pretty recently, much faster than the overall market, which was falling a little bit during that time, and we nearly hit a crossover point where the climate tech companies were no longer outperforming the overall market over that period. Most recently, it's been starting to come back a bit just over the past few weeks. So as of today, as of this recording, since January 2020, the EIP Climate Tech Index is up 90%, where NASDAQ is up 53%. So it's still outperforming the market. And meanwhile, the issuance of new SPACs has slowed down. The SPACs themselves, post-SPAC companies, um, you know, haven't seen dramatic outperformance of the market. But many of these other companies that are providing some technology and some climate-oriented market remain elevated. And, you know, I think it is an indication that the investment flows in the public markets into things that have a climate benefit remains strong and it's not getting sucked down by whatever's happening in Spaceland land at the moment now where does this go in the future nobody knows obviously but it remains a space to watch and something that we're monitoring closely uh, just because it has all of these reverberating effects back to earlier in the ecosystem okay now on to today's episode so one of my favorite things about the tech world collectively training its attention on climate, which has certainly happened over the past couple of years, is focusing on all of these tools that have been developed for and applied in other domains to great success that can now be leveraged in the climate or energy domain. Some examples that come to mind, synthetic biology, geospatial tools like satellite imagery, audio only, social media apps, just kidding on that last one, RIP Clubhouse, But obviously, the big kahuna in this regard is machine learning and AI, and the array of applications of machine learning to climate is both staggering already and rapidly expanding. But I wouldn't say we're quite there yet. like It's not widely adopted within this sector in the way that it is in other sectors like healthcare and increasingly in the financial world. There's still a lot of exciting point solutions, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an example of AI directly and meaningfully reducing greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale already. So a while back, we had Priya Donti, who is an AI scientist, PhD student at Carnegie Mellon, and is co-chair of uh, an organization called Climate Change AI on this podcast to talk about the intersection of these two, this, this discipline, machine learning, and this problem, climate change. So this week, we brought Priya back, along with reinforcements um, in the form of her climate change AI colleague, Lynn Kak, who is a postdoc researcher at at ETH Zurich um, and also an expert in the field. Priya and Lynn were co-authors on what I consider to be basically the definitive text on this topic, on this intersection. Back in June 2019, they published this paper which they reference in the conversation called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. It's over a hundred pages and every page is worth a read. So with no further ado, Priya Donte and Lynn Kak. Priya and Lynn, welcome both.
3: Thanks, Thanks,
2: Uh It's great to have you both here. So I'm excited to chat with you about the linkage between AI and machine learning and climate change and climate change technology. Priya, I might have you start, I've heard you do this before, you do it well. Um, For us ML novices, can you just give us the quick overview of the major categories of machine learning techniques? And then I think we'll come back to them as we talk about how they apply in various climate change contexts.
1: Yeah, sure thing. So at a high level, machine learning is a set of techniques that are um, good at extracting patterns from data and usually large amounts of data. And this can take on a couple of different forms. So one of these is supervised learning, which basically refers to trying to, in some sense, learn some answers that are already given to you on the data. So, for example, if you have a bunch of images um, and you have those images labeled as these images are dogs and these images are cats, your machine learning algorithm might try to learn some kind of mapping between, well, if I see this kind of image, I can tell you whether it's a dog or a cat because you gave me a bunch of examples before where you had told me whether these images were dogs or cats. So that's supervised learning. Unsupervised learning is a case where you have a lot of data. It doesn't have a lot of labels or answers associated with it, but you're still trying to uncover some kind of structure in the underlying data. So for example, if you have a bunch of, for example, buildings that have energy demand associated with them, and you want to understand, well, can I cluster my buildings into different categories based on their energy usage patterns and get these kind of clusters that are similar to each other in some way. That would be one example of unsupervised learning, trying to cover uncover some kind of structure in that data. And then a third category is reinforcement learning. And this is one where you have some kind of actor, some kind of you can think of, for example, a battery that's trying to figure out how to charge or discharge on an electric power grid, some kind of actor that's interacting with some kind of environment, some kind of sequential environment, and it's taking some kind of action, getting some kind of signal back that tells it about the quality of its action and tries to, in some sense, adapt its action over time based on the quality of that signal. So rather than learning over some kind of fixed data set, instead it's interacting with some kind of sequential environment and and adapting according to that. So in some sense, to to summarize that, you have supervised learning, learning over a fixed data set where you have answers provided and you're trying to replicate those answers. Unsupervised learning, where you have a fixed data set and you don't necessarily have fixed answers, but you're trying to uncover some underlying structure like clusters in the data set. And then reinforcement learning, where you don't have a fixed data set, but you're instead interacting with and adapting to some kind of sequential environment.
2: Perfect. Thank you, Priya. That's very uh, understandable, even for us dummies like me. but, you know, I think one of the things that is sort of obvious when you talk about these these two categories of machine learning and climate change, both of them are really, really broad. Like you just mentioned three different types of machine learning. There's obviously a million subcategories within each of those and ways to combine them. And it's this, you know, massive entire field. Simultaneously, climate change is the same thing, right? Climate change is like, it's maybe the broadest category in existence. It affects every system that we've developed on Earth as well as the physical Earth itself. So... Lynn, I guess, as you think about at the high level, the interaction between AI, ML, and climate change, is it just the application of a suite of techniques on one side to a suite of problems on the other side? Or is there anything that makes this particular linkage distinct?
3: So you said that both of them are actually really broad categories, but I think they're also very different. So... Um, You can actually call AI and machine learning a field and climate change is not a field. And I think there is maybe a main challenge here because... It's, it's a problem that affects so many different fields and sectors. Um, you have social sciences that are affected on the academic side, engineering sciences, natural sciences right and then you have so many stakeholders that are involved, so you have to actually engage with industry um, with policy makers with people who are affected from a changing climate so um I think the the climate change side makes things really complicated because you really need to understand well um where can i apply my skills if i'm coming from the machine learning side um you need to learn how to navigate this space and and pick like a sub problem of this this huge problem space and i think that's really where the challenge is
1: yeah and sort of given that just like heterogeneity in both sides i think this was really our task when we wrote this uh paper tackling climate change with machine learning a few years ago that was really trying to synthesize, you know, how exactly does machine learning fit into this climate change paper, into this climate change area rather. Um, and it took us a while. It took us like a 100 pages to do what we thought was actually a, as, as concise as we could get in this particular area. But part of that challenge was in some, in some sense aggregating specific themes, like ways in which we thought that even across climate change areas, machine learning could help. So these were things like gathering data Right. Looking at things like satellite imagery to pinpoint greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, building footprints or crop yields, things like that, or mining large amounts of, you know, text documents to understand, you know, company financial disclosures, um, which is something that, for example, Lynn has worked on. Um we also, in addition to gathering data, kind of identified across climate relevant areas that forecasting is, of course, a really big theme. Things like solar power now casting on the power grid or forecasting transportation demand. And this is, again, a place where there's a lot of data. You have some historical data you want to gain insight on and where machine learning can then help kind of create these forecasts. And then similarly, you have, you know, uh, applications where you're optimizing real world systems like you're trying to, you know, optimize heating and cooling systems in buildings you have situ- situations where you're trying to approximate engineering models like you're trying to slim down climate models or power system optimization models and you also have accelerated science applications things like um, where you're trying to accelerate the discovery of batteries by kind of learning from insights on previous experiments to identify which kinds of experiments come next so we identified various themes like this on the you know forecasting gathering data optimizing systems etc that describe a really heterogeneous range of applications on the climate change side but I think represent, you know, various kinds of strengths that machine learning can bring across these applications.
2: So I want to talk about a few specific examples of applications of ML to climate change related problems, and we'll talk about what the opportunities are and what the challenges are. But first, because you mentioned that paper that that you guys wrote a few years ago, and that then um, has burgeoned into this whole organization, climate change AI, that you're both involved in. I'm curious about the human side of this, because you know it certainly feels like from where i sit on the kind of tech side and tech investment side the there's been this absolute explosion of interest and talent that is dedicating itself to various climate change related problems, right? The the, the eye, collective eye of the tech world has turned itself dramatically toward climate change recently. And you see this in all these like funding announcements and new funds getting created and all the Silicon Valley folks and that kind of thing. I'm curious how you've seen it from the ML engineer and ML scientist, ML researcher side. Are, is it noticeably different today the the talent that is dedicating itself to this problem relative to even just a couple of years ago when you wrote that paper um, or have you found it to be pretty consistent?
3: Well, we have a huge selection bias because <laughs> we are um, we're sharing climate change AI. So a lot of our like, immediate environment is obviously interested in it. But um, for example, the number of submissions to our workshops. So we have run a series of workshops at um, large AI conferences and, um, every time it's they're growing. So we're seeing a lot more submissions, uh, that more whatever set of problems also being tackled. So I think that, that really shows that more people are devoting time to this problem.
2: Do you think that's just because there's increasing interest in climate change in general? Do you think that, I guess I'm, I'm curious in the, if I'm a, you know, generic ML researcher, um, what would have stopped me from applying my skill set to climate change related problems a few years ago that would now allow me to to take the leap
3: i think sort of what we what we touched on before that it's really hard to understand like where would i even start who would i contact who would i collaborate with like what what can i even do to address climate change like the real basics i think um there weren't very many entry points, especially not um, from the tech world. So I think that has changed a lot, yeah. All
2: right, so let's talk about some specific examples. So we've got three, I think that we wanna run through. Um, and in each case, we should talk about what is the opportunity, how can we apply ML to do something better to help mitigate greenhouse gas emissions? Uh, and then we should talk about what the challenges are to adoption, obviously we haven't solved any of these problems, that's why there's still problems. So first one, Priya, maybe I'll start with you. Um, I know you spent a lot of time on power system optimization and applications of ML techniques there. Can you give us an example or two within the power system of how we can and perhaps how we are using ML to do something better?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess to even step back for a second and talk about when I say power system optimization, this can refer to a really broad umbrella of applications. And so there are two that I kinda wanna highlight. One is if you're sitting in a power sector control room, power system control room, you're trying to, you know, always have this balance between the amount of power supplied into the grid and the amount of power consumed in, from the grid at any given moment, subject to various kinds of physical constraints. And so I will use like AC optimal power flow, one of these power system optimization problems as sort of an example. But of course, there are many different kinds of optimization problems that are being solved in that control room in order to, to manage power. And in that particular case, the the key challenge is basically that, you know, we have these power system optimization problems like AC optimal power flow that have to be solved at kind of increasing speed. Because as we have, you know, variable renewables coming onto the grid, we need to schedule our grids more frequently in order to accommodate that uncertainty. And we have to solve them at increasing scale as you have more devices coming onto the grid. And already these existing power system optimization problems are really large and they're really slow to solve. So the question is, how can we actually speed up how these power system optimization problems run in order to make it tractable to manage, you know, high renewables power grids? And machine learning has come into play here in in a couple of different ways. So there's been a body of work that's basically tried to work with existing power system optimization models and try to identify, okay, I have these various constraints that these optimization models have to satisfy that you know make this thing slow to run. Can I look at previous data, figure out which of these constraints were redundant, take them out of the problem, make the problem smaller, and then as a result, solve a problem that is smaller and faster to solve? There's been another body that's basically looked at, well, when I run my optimization problem, I have some kind of starting point. I have some initial guess for what my power dispatch might look like. And then my optimizer sort of refines that answer in general in order to make something that, that is actually feasible for the grid. So machine learning has looked at, can I actually find a better starting point so that the final optimizer converges more quickly? Um And then there's also been a body that's tried to just directly, you know, take the inputs to your power system optimization model, see what outputs it gave, and you view that as a supervised learning problem, as we were getting at before, where you have the inputs to the problem as your kind of data, and the outputs to the problem as your labels, and try to get a machine learning model to just approximate that whole thing. And a big kind of research challenge there, and it's actually an area I work on as well, is how to make sure that that particular machine learning model Actually satisfies the physics and hard constraints associated with AC optimal power flow while kind of actually learning from the data. So I can go into bottlenecks, but let me stop there for a second. And I think that's sort of the like machine learning challenge for speeding up centralized power system optimization models.
2: I think it's a really good example, and maybe this is getting to one of the bottlenecks. You know, the power system has been one. It, there, there's obviously an enormous amount of data, as you said, an increasing amount of sort of complicated controls that have to take place within the system. And so it seems at first blush, like the kind of obvious place, uh, within this sector to apply ML techniques. On the other hand, it is, as you said, physical. And so anything that you do has to work within the reality of the physics. But just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, um, it is a sector that, you know, values, reliability above all else. And so I suspect you could tell me if this is what you've seen as well. I suspect that there has been some reticence to adopt some of these techniques, but anything particularly that is more revolutionary, just because if there is any increased risk that operating these models will break the grid, will cause an outage, that is the single most important thing to avoid if you are, um, the one operating the power system. And so the question is kind of how do you bridge the divide from we've done some research and we think we could do this a little bit better to you should apply this across an entire ISO or something like that.
1: Exactly. And I think that that really is the core challenge here. And I think I'll break it down a little bit beyond just reticence. Um, I think there is absolutely that. And I think there's absolutely, you know, real issues in terms of, you know, wanting to make sure that whatever you put onto your power grid is going to avoid a blackout but I also think that there are, in some sense, a lack of innovation structures and a lack of you know, testing out integration structures that allow us to even start to ask these questions about what comes next. So, for instance, if I want to test out my kind of sped up power system optimizer, how do I do that? Well, I can't go into a control room and say, hey, can you actually replace this part of your optimization model with mine? But there isn't even, for example, often a parallel test bed where you can see, well, how would mine have done? And this is also because um, in general, in a lot of power system control rooms, they're not procuring individual pieces of algorithms. They're procuring a huge, big, big piece of software from one particular company. And that piece of software varies from control room to control room. And so... There isn't really a good mechanism for just like incremental testing or marginal development. You sort of have kind of this all or nothing, you know, you you provide all the software, or you don't. And there have to be these kind of intermediate staged models. And there have been some good examples here of entities that are really trying to bridge this gap. So for instance, one challenge, um, one um, example I'll highlight is a challenge that was run by um, RTE France. EPRI and a number of other entities called the Learning to Run a Power Network Challenge, L2RPN um, is their acronym. And what they basically did is they said, we want to understand whether reinforcement learning is potentially a viable option for doing topology switching on power grids or also managing power grids, given that you know the underlying reality of the grid will shift as we install more renewables. They had two different tracks for these two problems. But they said, let us put out a very small test system and kind of a an environment where we've specified the problem. We've done abstracted away everything that, you know, a machine learning researcher may not understand and sort of crystallize this. This is the place where you have we need algorithm development. This is the input to your algorithm. This is the output. Come up with an algorithm for us and tell us, you know, we will see if it actually optimizes this small test case well. And then they ran the first challenge. They saw what the outcomes were like. They then ran a second challenge that was, you know, doing slightly different things based on the insights from the first challenge and was also testing out a larger system. They ran a third challenge. So there's a series of these challenges where they're sort of, you know, putting out the minimum viable version of the problem they're trying to solve in a system that is not their actual live power system and are building on that in order to, you know, provide a pathway to to development and a pathway to integration into their workflows. Um, And another example I'll put out is the um, ARPA-E's Go competition in the U.S., which um, tries to solve this problem of um, security-constrained optimal power flow, optimizing a power grid so that it's um, robust to various outages of various, you know, lines and generators. They also have the staged approach where they put out challenge one, they had people solve a particular problem, and then challenge two has them solve a harder problem on also realistic systems. So I think these kinds of staged innovation environments are going to be really important.
0: The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy software provider specializing in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions products manage over 400 megawatts of clean energy assets. Smarter Grid Solutions' Strata Resilience product is a software-enabled microgrid control solution that delivers grid-connected island and Blackstar microgrid functions. Integrating microgrids to bigger grids and markets, it optimizes revenues while delivering supply security. Strata Resilience delivers all the capabilities required for the management of clean energy assets in microgrids, and it's already being deployed and creating value for customers in North America and the UK. To learn more about smarter grid solutions and the value-adding microgrid solutions offered by Strata Resilience, visit sgsderms.com interchange or follow the link in the show notes. The Interchange is brought to you by Enel X. The energy industry is rapidly changing. Project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek more renewable energy. Enel X helps solar partners get more revenue from those projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter by accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions. Find out more at enelx.com, that's E-N-E-L-X.com.
2: All right, so let's take a turn from physical constraint environment into corporate climate world. Lynn, I know you've spent some time looking at applications of ML techniques to identification of climate risk disclosures from from large companies. What does that look like and what do you think the opportunity is there?
3: Yeah, exactly. So um, this is actually an example where you leverage huge bodies of um, or corpuses of text um, that previously you couldn't really analyze at scale and then use machine learning to gain insights from these larger bodies of of data essentially, and um, here the problem is that um, companies are facing risks as the climate is changing. So um, we are all aware that there are physical risks to companies. So, for example, an agricultural business might be impacted by uh, changing precipitation patterns, um, but there are also transition risks. So. Um, For example, if you are producing internal combustion engines, um, you might actually be seriously impacted by um, the transition in the transportation sector. So you're facing policy and technology and market risks. And um, of course, all of these risks also come with opportunities for um, other market players. Um, But... We are really interested in this project to really understand the risk and where the capital might be misallocated in the financial sector. Um, So this is also something that policymakers are really interested in and in particular investors. And um, the way that companies are typically disclosing this kind of risk is in annual reports. Um, They are long Written documents in PDF form that are being put out by every company on the website. Um, Then there are also other types of documents, but I'm not going to go into detail here. But the most important ones are these annual reports, especially in Europe. And um, there you're already starting to run into one problem because they are decentralized. You have to actually go to the different websites of companies or pay for really costly. private tools to to have these um, annual reports aggregated in places. And then you have to deal with the PDF format, which is not machine readable. So you actually need to convert it into text and um, you're introducing a lot of mistakes that way. Tables are not easily being read. Figures get lost. Um, So in in order to develop your machine learning model, then you also have to have training data. So um, the way... We, we get at this training data so far is actually making it ourselves. So we hired a number of students in, in the project where I'm involved in and actually, um, have them be trained and then manually label a number of these texts. And that takes uh, quite some time. And, um, and still the data sets that you're working with are very, very small. Um, so there you're already getting at a problem that this, this climate change space is so dispersed and the problems are so niche in a way that there is not like large training sets out there as in other problems, for example, in computer vision. Um, And then the other big interesting insight from from this kind of work is that um, you really have to develop the learning problem. And it takes a lot of time to to come up with the right kind of problem where machine learning is actually really helping you to gain insights. So you have to define what am I actually looking for? Um, What is my unit of analysis? Like, what is the data point? Do I want to classify it and in which classes? And um, ultimately, you end up with like a very, very particular... Um, application algorithm that can answer this one question, and since there's so so little work out there on these um, very niche applications, um, it it still takes some time until you actually define okay, this is actually the real the real learning problem that I'm interested in, and then you can go and and try to improve the performance.
2: This this is a good example for me of a case wherein ML can solve a problem that it shouldn't have to solve, right? Like at the end of the day, we should have Every every company should disclose its climate risk, physical risk, and transition risk. It should be measured, it should be disclosed, and it should be disclosed in a consistent format that is machine-readable and can be aggregated easily, and we can just pull down a database of every company's climate risk, uh, and then that can get incorporated into financial products and into policymaking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in the meantime, that's just not happening. That's reality in a million different places, and so using machine learning techniques, natural language processing, and so on can basically bridge that divide. But you know, unless you feel differently, it seems to me like that's a that's a place that the you know some combination of like some enterprising company and or regulatory requirements and or policy should should maybe solve this problem without ML someday.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course there are movements towards this. So there's, for example, the CDP, climate change questionnaire, which is a more structured way to disclose risk and um, climate action. Um, unfortunately, those are also not freely publicly available, those reports, and they still come in text form. So you still need to analyze text. Um, but you're absolutely right. That's That's a place where one should move. Um, the benefit of having these disclosures in the annual reports, though, is that uh, most investors actually read them. So there's also some argument for salience. So if you if you actually bury this information in some dedicated report, maybe um, the places that should read it are not actually seeing it. So you really want to place them in the in the most prominent places, um, which in that case, an annual report is is probably the the, the best bet here. Um, And you already addressed policy. So, like, one question that we are actually really interested in is, of course, what is the effect on policy? Um, The EU, for example, has um, provided guidelines on financial disclosure. Um, They started in 2014 and now are actually discussing also a mandatory um, approach to financial disclosure and then there are countries like France, for example, that actually have laws around financial disclosure. So we are interested in understanding if these policies are effective in actually really forcing corporations to to be more open about the
1: financial, uh, the climate-related financial risks that they're facing. Um, one thing I want to highlight is that, yeah, this example of kind of you know ML cr- providing some kind of stopgap while we're in some sense waiting for something that would in some sense be a better practical solution is a a really, I think, legitimate and relevant theme in, in a number of applications. So ML for financial disclosures is one. But one other example we've heard is the sort of um, chicken and egg uh, issue around setting up data collection infrastructure. So for example, in places that are maybe more resource constrained there might be NGOs or local governments that are saying we need to instrument our buildings or our you know natural environment with various kinds of sensors or actually do targeted data collection surveys in a way that allows us to then have this you know rich database of data to in in order to inform policy and then the people who hold the purse strings in this case will say well you need to prove to us that the data would actually be useful for you, um, in order for us to fund it. But then they say, well, we need money in order to actually collect the data. So there's this little bit of a chicken and an egg problem. And so this is a situation where ML mining kind of raw pieces of data that may exist, be they from text or be they from satellite imagery, etc, can provide this kind of initial stopgap to say, hey, look, let's actually just get this started. Here's some initial raw data, here's something that you can start making decisions off of, where you can then start to see the value of having that data And also where that data is limited, where there are gaps, and then kind of drive funding towards filling those actual data gaps and providing more structured data. So I think it's important, this point you made, uh, both you, Lynn, and both you, Shale and Lynn, that basically, like, there are lots of situations where ML is not the end goal, but it can kind of provide that stopgap to set some other ball rolling that is really important from a data perspective.
3: And you can also understand where you should go about and collect data so you can prioritize.
2: All right. So let's talk about one more example quickly, and then we could take a step back, um, which is, I think, Priya, you kind of alluded to this in one of your, your examples in the beginning, there's a, there's a lot in building world that can be done. There's a lot of data that is generated that is underutilized in the world of buildings, housing, and real estate. What's an example there that relates to climate uh, where you think ML is a good good tool to be used?
1: Yeah, so, um, I'll start and then Lynn, hopefully, if you want to jump in, feel free. Um, but I think one really, um, kind of important um, application here is in um, pinpointing which buildings are likely to be good candidates for um, energy retrofits and actually understanding even just attributes of the existing building stock in order to shape retrofit policy as a whole. So there have been some work that, for example, has tried to um, look at, you know, open street map data or satellite imagery to actually try to estimate various attributes of the existing building stock in in order to actually Serve this problem, but um, a challenge is, I mean, first of all, buildings are everywhere, global, and you know they look very different across different locations. This is something that Lynn likely contended with in a problem she worked on, where she was trying to identify, you know, freight counts in various countries. Right, the the fundamental infrastructure looks very different in different places, um, and so you have this challenge where you you know can get some of this ground truth data for some locations, and you can't necessarily get it for for others. I think in addition to the ML challenges, there are various just, you know, practical challenges around financial models here. So for example, um energy efficiency is often looked to as, you know, one particular example of energy justice, where you have, you know, lots of lower income folks in the United States, for example, that are paying a lot more for energy than they should be because they may not have, for example, had the opportunity to, you know, their landlords, for example, may not have invested in energy efficient, energy efficient equipment in their own buildings, etc. So you have all these split incentive problems and stuff everywhere. So how do you create these various kinds of, you know, financial models that actually allow you to invest in in maybe building stock that may not have gotten prior investment to actually make sure energy efficiency happens there. Um, And I guess one example I I would love to bring up here is um, a company called Block Power, which basically does energy efficiency retrofits um, starting in the city of Brooklyn with a huge focus on how can we actually channel these investments into places that, you know, were historically marginalized or historically were ignored in this kind of, you know, building energy retrofit picture. And they sort of, you know... Combine various, you know, technical and financial innovations here. From a financial side, they said, well, if an investor views a building efficiency investment in a particular location as high risk, how can we get them to still invest in it? Well, let's bundle together a bunch of energy efficiency investments and sell that bundle so that the kind of risk is amortized a lot across a bunch of different buildings. Well, within that picture, how do we make that financial product still more attractive? Well, maybe we can use ML and other technologies to kind of um, assess, you know, both how likely is a particular retrofit to be successful within that particular portfolio? And how can we use machine learning and sensor data to actually verify the success of a particular, you know, energy efficiency investment? So it's one where I think because you have this, you know, you have a lot of, you know, historical and social factors that are coming into play. You have, you know, lots of different locational diversity considerations that are coming into play, and you have a tech picture in play, it's really worth thinking about how do your financial and technical models actually play nicely with each other in this way.
2: So stepping back, I'm curious to get both of your opinions on something that we we at EIP have debated over and over again, um, which is the degree to which these solutions, these AI ML applications within climate should be done through vertically integrated specialists who are just tackling one really specific problem or one really specific sector versus these more horizontal platforms that are we will apply ai to a bunch of different solutions and we have some unique techniques and algorithms to do that so the the example would be maybe we'll go back to like the you know power system optimization actually any of these that we've talked about um is the right actor to solve that problem a company or entity that is you know knows the power sector in and out knows the customers in and out, understands the ISOs and is is just applying the right suite of ML techniques to that specific problem? Or is it like a Palantir or somebody who's right, like, you know, applying a ML techniques across a wide array of industries can draw lessons from other industries and data, in fact, and apply those lessons into this sector. So it's a vertical versus a horizontal question. And I, I wonder, if there's a sort of Go to market and business model element to that, like how do you actually sell into these generally highly regulated legacy industries? But there's also just a um, technical question there. Are you going to be better at doing this if you are extremely deep and specialized, or if you are broad and can leverage insight from from other sectors?
3: Or There's also a a third dimension, essentially, should the utility itself um, have a group or should the company itself um, spin up internally a machine learning group that can do the work?
2: Very good point. And also a question that is hotly debated, generally speaking, like, is that should this sit inside the grid operator entirely? Should they basically it's a build versus buy? Question for them.
1: And I think my take is that there's never going to be like kind of one silver bullet model here. Like each of these has their own, you know, upsides and downsides. I think if you're doing the vertical model or a team within a utility, you have a team that, you know, is very well versed in kind of the, you know, the, the particular problems from the the quote-unquote domain perspective, from the perspective of, for example, the power sector that need to be solved and are maybe bringing in sort of the existing machine learning techniques, etc. But that may not be, example, for example, looking to the state of the art in machine learning to understand what the possibility space looks like, to be truly generative. Whereas if you have these kind of horizontal entities that, you know, are they're very tuned into the, you know, state of the art of machine learning and can draw, you know, connections between these different areas, but aren't, you know, well enough immersed in the particular problem space. They may miss out on, you know, what exactly needs to be done to integrate this into, you know, a deployment workflow, rather than just have this be a cool application that sits in a paper somewhere. So I think you do need a bit of both. And I think the crux is that there needs to be a way kind of at the intersection or at the heart of all of this to do real generative problem scoping and development. In a way that is cognizant of both you know what are the new things that are happening in machine learning and what are the evolving realities of the particular area that we're trying to implement something in and can kind of like nimbly you know merge insights from these and again be truly generative because I think the issue is that when we silo horizontally on the machine learning axis or vertically on the problem domain axis, we kind of lose that that intersection very strongly,
3: and I think it really depends on the application right is it Is it very modular is like the machine learning aspect a well-known problem where you just need the state-of-the-art performance, like crack detection and images that are very general, for example? Or or is it something that integrates really tightly with the processes um, in the p- particular company? So do you need a lot of design around how, it, how the machine learning algorithm integrates with what is already there, with legacy software, with um, decision makers? So I think it really depends on that as well.
2: All right. So... Um... I guess final question, let's, um, I, I know both of you have put a lot of thought into through your climate change AI hat and probably more generally the sort of policy and regulatory dimension of this. We talk a lot about the technology side of applying ML to various climate related problems. What do you see the role of the policy world? What can be done to accelerate the adoption of these techniques and research for these techniques to solve this suite of problems?
3: Yeah, so maybe touching on what we just talked about is um, finding models to really have these test beds try out um, machine learning applications and um, spin up businesses that are specialized in that. Um, and I think policy can actually do quite a lot here. So um, one idea could be to have fully or partially public institutions that are actually these solutions providers and specialize in certain sectors and allow companies to to have a lower barrier and a clear um, business case to try out these kind of um, machine learning applications. So that would be one idea. Um, we also discussed um, sort of second-mend programs where um, that could also be publicly funded that would allow machine learning experts uh, dive actually deeper into an industry, work with a company for a time and um, get also these domain skills that are required to work at that intersection and also provide a low risk opportunity for a company to try out machine learning
1: approaches. I think another place is there's, um, a kind of public funding opportunity here, which is that if we look at kind of, you know, um, uh, academic, private innovation models in other sectors, thinking of, for example, the tech sector, defense, These are often entities that have a lot of money. So they can do things like go in and fund, you know, a large set of Ph.D. students to work on research problems that are very tightly tied to what they're doing. They can go participate in, you know, job fairs and career fairs and sort of, you know, have this flow from universities to these entities, you know, very have a good pipeline for that. Um Whereas I think a lot of climate relevant entities and again, the space is very diverse, but a lot of climate relevant entities maybe have the problem or the need, um, but they either don't have the money to actually participate in this particular way, nor maybe do they have the expertise to have people who have already scoped out these problems and put them into forms that are already, you know, PhD thesis programs, etc. So I think funding for both, you know, actually, you know, identifying these places where there might be a climate relevant entity that, you know, could come in and fund a bunch of, or uh, provide a bunch of research problems, but where that funding piece doesn't come with that entity, doesn't come with the problem owner? How can we have, you know, funding models that fill that particular gap so we can adopt these kind of, again, like academic to private innovation models that already exist, but in places where the problems and the money aren't already connected with each other? Um, And then also, how can we invest resources into actually problem scoping with various entities in a way that's sort of cognizant of the needs of that entity and of the the technical possibilities of, for example, what machine learning can do and kind of provide this you know, ecosystem of almost problem scopers that can put these out and say, hey, this is the concrete problem we need solved. Now, whatever sector that is the best suited to do that, go for it. So I think there's a lot of stuff in there for sure.
2: I guess the other thing that we should address Briefly, though, it's not sort of the core topic here, is you know when we take a broader look at the world of ML, there are a bunch of other questions, some of which relate to climate that are important. Obviously, the energy use of data centers, uh, which drive ML, have has been a big topic of conversation. They're also, apart from climate stuff, they're equity uh, questions. So I'm curious how you think about kind of wrapping the policy discussion around ML applications in climate to the broader uh, impact of ML on climate and on other social issues conversation.
3: Yeah, so maybe we can um, start with the energy consumption of machine learning piece. And here in particular, so as com- as they are computer algorithms, they actually use um, energy for running for training um for inference like throughout the model pipeline. Um and those can get quite substantial. So in the area of natural language processing, for example, developing a machine learning model from scratch takes up a lot of energy that is comparable to to other things in the economy, for example, travel. Um, and addressing this has been on the agenda, on the policy agenda. And Um, one really important aspect here that we see is gathering better data on especially, um, how fast is the share of AI growing in terms of compute and and data centers? Um, how are, how is industry actually using AI models? And in particular, does inference, is the share of energy consumption of inference? Um, so when you are actually using the algorithm, um a A big chunk that one should look at or, it, or should we be worried about um the training phase i um, mean these are all questions that are still up in the air, and I think policy makers Do have an an opportunity now to
1: um, collect better data on this? Yeah, and I think more broadly, um, you know, AI's relationship with climate change and relevant issues, as as you hinted at, Shayla, is really multifaceted. So you have, as we've talked about mostly in this podcast, you know, AI's use for way AI's use to actually help with you know um, climate change mitigation and adaptation. Lynn touched upon the energy use of AI, there's also, you know, AI's use in ways that maybe accelerate emissions-intensive industries or increase consumption across society or ways that, you know, increase emissions. And there's also the reality that today... AI is generally more accessible to entities that have, you know, more money or power in society. And that means that you are possibly exacerbating the divide between, you know, certain entities that now can accelerate their missions and their goals and their their power through AI um, and others that maybe don't have access to this because they don't have the underlying data, because they don't have access to the underlying capital or expertise. And so... I think basically it's it's really the role of policy and regulation to look at this picture holistically, right? Rather than just zooming in on, you know, let's focus just on the energy consumption of AI or let's focus just on how, you know, AI can help tackle climate change um and not think about in some sense the interaction with all of these other aspects. I think then we would in some sense be missing the mark, maybe focusing on the wrong things and really, you know, pursuing one axis of this that maybe has, you know, bad consequences for other axes of this. So I think it's the role of policy to really consider these aspects of both positive and negative uses and power shifts, you know, very holistically um, in in the way we move forward. And for example, comprehensive regulation on AI, like the EU AI regulation, is I think one way to move forward on stuff like that.
2: Priya and Lynn, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time today.
1: Thanks so much, Shale. Thank you.
2: Priya Dante is a co-founder and chair of Climate Change AI. She's also a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon. Dr. Lynn Kack is also a chair, along with Priya of Climate Change AI. She's a postdoc researcher at the Energy and Technology Policy Group at ETH Zurich. She's also soon to be on the faculty at the Herdy School in Berlin. So if you're interested in taking courses from her, that's where to go. Uh, tell us what you thought, as always, of this episode. You know, this is a big topic, and we'd like to spend some more time digging into the weeds as we do on climate change, AI-related topics. So let us know what you want us to spend more time on. Tweet at us at Interchange Show or send us an email uh, at contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by PostScript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan. And this is The Interchange.